Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Hey folks, today's episode is brought to you by Litbreaker. Litbreaker is an online advertising network for bookish people, for literary people, for people who like books. If you want to reach people who like books on the internet, just go to litbreaker.com and learn how you can advertise on a bunch of great literary sites, culture sites, sites for bookish people. You know what I'm talking about? If you want to reach those people, go to litbreaker.com. Litbreaker, it's an online advertising network for book people. Go and advertise on it. Oh my God. You are not alone. You have found other people. You and I have a friend in common. Every stupid thing that a writer could do, I've done. I think it's really beautiful. Jesus, dude, what a struggle, you know? It was incredible. Yeah. It was like your head exploded seeing what was really there. And now here's your host, Brad Listy. Just one person at just one time. Yeah. So, hi, everybody. How's it going? I'm Brad Listy here in Los Angeles. It's good to be with you. Thank you for listening to the podcast, the Other People podcast. Uh, did I say that I'm sitting here in Los Angeles? Did I say that Annabelle Gerwich is my guest today? Her new book is called Wherever You Go, There They Are, Stories About My Family You Might Relate To. It's available now from Blue Rider Press. Annabelle Gerwich, Wherever You Go, There They Are. That is coming up momentarily. Before we get there, I want to tell you about my day a little bit because I haven't done that in a while. Uh, as many of you know, I'm one of these people who has to move. I have to exercise in order to function normally. It's just how I'm wired. And I occasionally go to spinning class, which is a kind of a later development. Like it's only recently that I've started doing this feels ominous somehow, like some sort of development that, uh, I should fear, but I've started going to spin class just as a matter of convenience. It's a compressed amount of time. I can get in and out quickly. And if you've never been to a spinning class before, it's basically you and some other people in a smallish room on stationary bicycles. They usually have the room tiered into a kind of stadium seating arrangement. So there's a, you know, a, a higher row and then a middle row that's a little lower. And then below that is like the, the floor level. Does that make any sense? And the bikes are arranged in a U shape, like a U configuration around the instructor so that everybody can look at the instructor and at the spinning studio that I go to the wall that we face is covered in mirrors so you can see yourself and the other riders uh, on bikes as you look at the instructor 
And then above the mirrors or on that wall, like up toward the ceiling are two large flat screen televisions. Am I doing a good job of describing this? It's not that complicated. You know what a spinning class looks like, right? Jesus. So I'm in, I'm in, I'm in spinning class and uh, I'm on a bike. I'm looking at the instructor. I can see myself in the mirror. I can see these flat screen televisions and these flat screen televisions, uh, are up there because in every class, the teacher will, uh, often have what's called a race. Like you race against your fellow spinners to see who can pedal the fastest. It's kind of a playful thing, but uh, a couple times during the class, the teacher will push a button and there will be a list of names that appear, uh, that appears on these flat screens. It's like the, the, the female riders are listed on the left. The male riders are listed on the right. It's basically just a numbered list and everybody has, uh, their name on this list. But what I've noticed is that people use like code names. And by the way, you don't have to be on the flat screen list. This is something that I've, I learned that you can opt into. You can decide that you want to be on the flat screen list. You can put your name up there so that you can compete against your fellow spinners to see who is spinning the fastest. And it was only recently that I realized that this was even an option. I always sort of wondered how people got their names up there and why I didn't have my name up there. And additionally, I wondered why people, these are grownups, these are adults, like why people would use code names. Some of which are uh, depressingly earnest, like self-love, like S-E-L, like S-E-L-F-L-U-V was a name on the board this morning. <laughs> you know, I can't even remember what the other ones are, but it's, it's obnoxious is what I'm saying. And the kind of people that go to spinning classes, it's a mix. There's a lot of good people. You can't paint with too broad of a brush, but when you're in a spinning class and you're on these bikes, it's impossible not to survey your fellow riders. That's part of, I think the experience is to look into that mirror and be like, who else is spinning? What do I think of these people? It's a form of entertainment within the entertainment. If you know what I'm saying, it's the subtext of the whole experience. You're checking each other out in this mirror and, uh, you know, you see all sorts of different types of people or, or what you think are different types of people you project onto them. You guess at who they are. And in any kind of fitness related context, there's always going to be guys who are just, uh, lame and preening and sort of uh, ridiculously fit. And, uh, so I got it in my head. Like once I learned how to get my name up on the board. I, I realized there's an app and you can type your name in. It's like a, it's like you get the app and then you can, can switch it on. You can decide, you can opt in to being on the board and you can pick a code name. So there I am. And I've decided that I want to participate and be a part of the flat screen experience within the spinning class. And I have to pick a code name because I'm not going to just put Brad up there. I, I I'm going to play the game. I'm going to do this the way that other people do it. I'm going to follow precedent. And it occurred to me that it would be funny to use the nickname Total Douche. 
I thought that it would be uh, amusing to be in a spinning class and to have the teacher turn, you know, to put the list of names up on the flat screen and to see the name Total Douche on there, knowing that it was me, but then also getting to watch... (laughs) getting to watch the other students as they realized that Total Douche was in their class. And they were, you know, I I wanted to experience watching other students try to figure out where in the room total douche was spinning do you know what i'm saying because it's not it's not readily apparent the bikes are numbered and it tells you on the screen which name goes with which bike but no one knows which bike is which you've got to really know the room so i thought this will be funny i'll be total douche and that will be my nickname, and this will be a way of participating in the competitive element of the spinning class while also subverting it. And so I typed in Total Douche. I'm there, there I am in the app. I'm typing in Total Douche, and as it turns out, there's a character limit. So I can't have two separate words. I can't have Total and then Douche. And not only that, uh, I can't even have the letter E at the end of Douche. So my nickname became Total Douche, like one word. Uh, all smashed together, but the the E on douche was left out. But I went with it. So there I am, this morning, very early. Crack of dawn, in this room. The music is blaring. And there's all these people in there. It's mostly, it was mostly females uh, in this particular class. It was not a it was not a sold out uh, crowd. It was not a you know a full capacity room, but there were, I would guess, about twenty people in there, twenty twenty five people, mostly women, and me, and our instructor uh, Elizabeth, also a female. So the class begins, and in every single instance, every single class I've ever taken. When the teacher turns the screens on and you get to see the list of names, there, there are always multiple names on both sides. Multiple women, multiple men, all with their special secret code names. Spinning. But uh, on this fateful day, I was uh, spinning and the teacher turned the screen on in the middle of class and I was the only man... <laughs> I was the only man in the class to have, uh, to have opted in. And so on the left side of the screen, there were like, you know, eight or 10 female code names. And on the right side of the screen where the, the guys are listed, it just said total douche. <laughs> and, uh, it was so unusual and, uh, so, uh, noticeable that the teacher stopped the class made a point of singling she asked who you know who's total douche people were uh, snickering and I was acknowledged publicly as total douche and then uh, you know and I'm blushing because I'm not a person like I'm a person who likes to be subversive and I'm a person who likes to uh, in some way I guess make my voice heard but I don't like attention I don't like to be the center of attention. That's why I do a podcast. 
I don't like to be photographed. I don't like all eyes on me. You know, like, I don't love that. I can do it if I have to, but, you know, it's not something I seek out. So there I am on my bike, pedaling, wheezing. Like, I, I'm, I'm like, I can barely breathe. I'm exhausted, sweaty on this bike. And the teacher's like, well, who's, you know, who is total douche? Total douche, where are you? Because it's dark in there once the class gets started. It's sort of like a nightclub vibe. You know, the music is loud. The teacher has on one of these headset microphones like Madonna wears. Total douche, where are you? So I raise my hand. And people are laughing. And then the teacher... Uh, you know, adding insult to injury is like, you didn't even spell it right. And of course, I knew, I knew that I didn't spell it right. I was perfectly aware of how to spell douche. But in that context, with the music blaring in the middle of a spin class, I couldn't exactly, uh, there was no room for rebuttal. I couldn't say anything. I just had to take it. Everyone in the room was laughing, thinking like, this guy doesn't even know how to spell douche. Which as a writer is offensive to me. So it was an awkward class. I felt I had like, I was all of a sudden filled with all this nervous energy that sort of carried through the end of the class. It was a distraction and it sort of sullied my experience. And then uh, I left class relatively quickly after uh, it had ended because I didn't want to interact with anybody. I just wanted to get out of there. And I kind of kept my head down. I avo avoided eye contact with people, and I just left. And uh, I went next door to get a coffee. And uh, I was sitting there with my coffee, kind of going through email, getting my day started. And I looked up, and who should walk into the coffee shop a few minutes later, but Elizabeth, the teacher of my spinning class. And so uh, I was compelled. <laughs> I walked over. I was like, should I, you know, I need to clarify this. And so I got up. This is about 7 o'clock in the morning, 7.30. I walked over. I'm sweaty, holding a coffee. And I tapped her on the shoulder, and I was like, hey. And she turns, and she looks at me, and she smiles. And I said, listen... I just want you to know that I know how to spell douche. <laughs> I know there's an E, but there's a character limit on the, in the app. You couldn't, so I had to smack, you know, and I start to explain this. She's looking at me like I'm crazy. She was like, no, it was very good. It was great. Don't worry about it. How to spell douche. Total douche. <laughs> so now the question is, do I keep this? Do I just, do I own this now? Am I willing to uh, subject myself to this again? Or do I delete the name? I feel like it's a funny thing to do. As long as nobody knows it's me and people are just in there on their bikes, sweaty, they can't breathe, they look up, they see the name. Do you understand what I'm talking about? Can you picture this? 
Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Anyway, my guest today is Annabelle Gerwich. Her new book is called Wherever You Go, There They Are, Stories About My Family You Might Relate To. It is available from Blue Rider Press in a beautiful hardcover edition. Here she is, folks. This is Annabelle Gerwich. There was something, because you're... Um, and I had your email. <laughs> yeah. I, can't, I don't remember anymore, like, if I know people or I... No, no, it's a I small literary community in Los Angeles. It, it actually, it really is, though. Yeah, it really is. There's only so. I mean, there most people in it's this town system. are working in entertainment. You've worked in entertainment. You sort of cross over. I did. Well, yeah, except that I'm the only person who's like doesn't write scripts for that I knew for a little while. Now I'm I I well, you got a pilot. You got a pilot. No, no, no. <laughs> I I share an office with you know a bunch of other authors, and so I'm in a little sort of bubble of literary. Uh, you know, that's nice space. though. It's really nice. Well, it's just, it's and it really feels nice. like less like a feeding frenzy. It gets to me, mm-hmm. it gets overwhelming to me. All the people yeah. in this town trying to do the screenwriting thing. Yeah. Although, you know, I just feel like an idiot right now because it's sort of like, well, why aren't I doing, why does my, I, cause I sort of rewired my brain to work in sort of in an essay fashion. And I really should, should have rewired it to work. <laughs> to write like your own Amazon series? Yes. <laughs> like, what was I thinking? Yeah. Gee, yay. There's still yay time. Yay, me. Yeah. There's we'll still see. time. We'll see. Um, so where are you from? And this book is about your family. Well, when I, when I use the word family, I mean that in the broadest sense of the world, really more homo sapien family. Um, <laughs> now I really do. Um, the book, I'm using... My own nutty family from Alabama by way of Russia, uh, we're the Shalom Yal tribe of Jews, to um, tell the story of families that I have joined, as I say, accidentally or on purpose. So it's really a broader look at the way that we as a species, um, you know, collect into these fam familial type organizations. And so it was just, I just, I'm not really, uh, although sometimes I get put in this category, like a memoirist, that doesn't, that's just not, that's just not my thing. My bigger interest is in, um, sort of more larger cultural type of issues. And so one of the chapters in the book is about how multi-level marketing corporations use the 
loneliness of the gig economy to recruit sales people, which are mostly women who are disenfranchised from work families and have been, have aged out uh, of those, of their work life. And they're lonely in this gig economy. And so the companies we use this, we're family, we're the sisterhood, <laughs> but only if you sell a certain amount a month. And it's, it becomes really a, a predatory practice. People are starved for community. Yeah, people. So it's really a book about, you know, looking for your tribe and finding your tribe in unexpected places or expected places. And sometimes the expected place, like people you're actually related to, are not your people. Uh, sometimes, I mean, you know, I've worked for years and I still do this. I work in the theater world. And, you know, the theater tribe, starting from when you're in high school, the drama club, they just, they take in every person with some weirdo sensibility. You know, they're, they're, they're sort of the catch-all of weird teenagers. And um, that's, and you know, it's a very loyal tribe-like society. Is that your tribe? Was that mean like, can you define it? Yes. The theater p- tribe was my original tribe that I joined, um, looking for ridiculously for, if you're looking for stability, you wouldn't think you'd find it among <laughs> the show business, but theater's a different kind of thing. Like there's just those long hours that you spend together rehearsing, fucking around when you're not rehearsing. And there's this sort of way that people who are missing something end up there. And then, you know, I, I know the same people I did plays with. We did the wizard of Oz in high school, um, which was a, a stoned version. Cause I grew up in Miami, ended up growing up in Miami beach. And our version lasted about three and a half hours, give or take an hour or two. Cause we were so stoned when we were doing it. <laughs> I still know those people, you know, it's You're still in touch with them? the bonding. Yes. Wow. Yes. These things, they really, they can, they can really, um, get those people that you spend that kind of time with right. really become very tribal. And there's like certain languages. Now I'm not a musical theater person, but musical people, musical theater people are their own kind of people. I remember in my high school, like the musical theater people mm-hmm. at parties would hang out and like sing to one another. Yes. Well, if someone says, if you want to bump it and someone else will answer, bump it with a trumpet, you can say that like in a crowd. Is, like, they find each other and they'll just, they're just, you know, they're, there's a certain kind of my brain doesn't go that way. I'm they're ready person. for any like, yeah, at any moment. They're, they're just, ready to perform a musical. Right, but together, you see, it's doing it together, yeah. and it's there. These you know tribes. There's and and that's one of the tribes I I write about. You know, religious organizations are very tribal, of course. Um, and one of the chapters in the book is actually about how um, secular humanist groups of which are kind of my people too, um, are, um, Cause you're an atheist, to, right? I am. I mean, look, I'm Jewish. I will always be Cult- Jewish. culturally Jewish. Right. And I do some of those Jewishy things. I do the holidays there. I, they, you know, that food, it kind of, that food, it gets in your, your bones. I sound like my grandmother. It's in your bones because we were Southern, you know, and, um, and the holidays, they're sort of that ritual thing, which, you know, it actually, it it does something to your brain. Um, I mean, it's, it's, there's like a word for it that, um, anthropologists use collective effervescence. 
is a state that's created when you participate in rituals and in um, singing is one of these um, synchronous type of, um, not synchronicity, but synchronous, am I pronouncing it wrong? Synchronous. Synchronous, thank you. Um, uh, Activities that creates a kind of bonding and that happens through singing. And when you sing the same songs over and over again, they become like a part of your, um, it's not really your DNA, although you could argue with epigenetics, it might be, but you know, it just becomes a part of something so deep in you that you experience a kind of bonding with people when you're doing that. So yes, I'm Jewish, but I'm also this big old atheist. So what I didn't know was that all these groups and I, what I'm writing about in the book is all these groups have formed to take the place of religious organizations. And the funny thing is, of course, they end up with the same problems as religious organizations. They've had their spate of patriarchal problems and it's, it's, you know, you're any the same stuff family, happens everywhere. Well, the, so ultimately, you know, the theme of the book is no matter how hard you try to uh, escape your crazy family, you just end up in another crazy family. And that's, I think something that, you know, I have found to be true. At least maybe there are people who are less crazy. I just, don't seem to attract them. <laughs> so let's talk about like where yes. you're from. I mean, like the fact that you're mm-hmm. a Russian Jew who was from Alabama, mm-hmm. I think distinguish that distinguishes you. Correct. I mean, there's not a lot of, are there a lot of Jewish people? I know there's a lot of Jewish people in Miami, but uh, Alabama, when I think of it, not so much, not so much, um, not so much, but you know, um, it was one of the destinations just being a port that immigrants came to. And in particular, my family came because even though the climate was very different, they were in the same kind of trade. They were fur trappers. Oh. So when was um, this? This, this is, like... is early part of the 20th century, so around 1913. And what's the port? They're porting in like Mobile, M- Mobile Alabama. Because mm-hmm. my grandparents came from Italy. Mm-hmm. And they went to, they must've gone to New Orleans or, cause my folks are from Louisiana. Mm-hmm. Well, there were, well, there was a big, well, um, actually Dauphin Island, uh, a little barrier Island off the coast of Mobile, which I inherited a piece of land that nobody wants from much. It's going to be underwater book. soon. Sorry. It's going to be underwater <laughs> soon. Nobody wants this place. Um, was it's a part of Alabama, but at one point it was the capital of the French territories in Louisiana. I get the chance in this book to do a little bit of Southern history that I, I, I mean, there is something about the South that if you've spent time there or you're from there, um, it can get in, it has a hold on you, I think, because it's such a particular place. Yeah, it's distinct. There still has a distinctness to it, and it particularly had a distinctness when my family, when I was I was born there, um, but when the earlier generations, you know, lived there, and they lived very shtetl kind of lives. They were just, they collected together, like they were the Jews who were the shtetl people in New York and in Philadelphia, you know, living with shtetl, when you say that, that's a sort of a catchword, of course, for people who... Um, lived in a tight community. Some of them never spoke English. They only spoke Yiddish. They did business together. They intermarried. You know, it was a very tight community. And in Mobile, they were that way. My family... And that's where you're from, Mobile. That's where I'm from. My family uh, was one of the few Jewish families there. Everyone else were basically related to through intermarrying. And they were living in a way that um, Malcolm Gladwell has written about called... 
it's called it the crooked ladder of success. So they were bootleggers, they were moonshiners, they had this fur trading. They along the Mississippi, they were some pretty, pretty bad dudes. Your relatives, <laughs> yeah. your ancestors. Yeah. Yeah, they were, you know, kind of philanderers and gamblers. They they ran gambling boats and casinos. And they, Did you know these people? I did know some of these people. Now, I didn't know when I met, like, my great-grandmother, Rose. I didn't know that she had been a moonshiner. I didn't know that this whole part of the family, see, her husband, my two great-grandfathers, worked with the bootleggers. One was a welder in the shipyards and he was welding, um, stills for the moonshiners and the other had a dry goods store. And so he got enlisted to, in the sugar trade, uh, because sugar would come in from the, um, from Caribbean. South America, right? Yeah. From the Caribbean. So his nickname was Sugar. Then my other grandfather, they got in league together and they worked with the bootleggers providing the sugar and working on the stills. And then their two children married my grandfather and my grandmother. I mean, this is these kind of people, right? And Are these people like marrying their cousins? No, they weren't related, you know, but they then they married. My parents are cousins. They are. Yeah. Not by blood, but by the family's intermarriage. Because that, like, that's the thing. Like, I, like Franklin Roosevelt married his cousin. Like they, people used to do this more often. You know, actually, they still do that. I just actually was at a Freakonomics taping of their radio show, and an anthropologist said that something like uh, one out of every 10 Americans is a second cousin. So by DNA. So it means that we sh- they share DNA traits, not necessarily... Um, what that actually definition is is not as terrifying as it sounds, although it's still terrifying because we. <laughs> some, but there is some sort of biological drive um, that does attract people to like people. But in this case, it was also that shtetl mentality of like who's there, whose people knew whose people, and because it was all. I mean, it was like they. Ver- you know how um, in in royals in royal families they're trying to secure power and money and all that. Well, this is like that on the very low level scale of like we've got a dry goods store <laughs> and you've got dry goods. We got the store, you got the goods. Great. I mean, this is like the lowest Let's level. Of Let's like get them coupled getting, up. Yeah, but I didn't know like my great grandmother. She was just like this little old lady who wore those like big horrible shoes, those orthopedic shoes, and she had little round glasses. Okay, so she owned a brothel. She. <laughs> She was a moonshiner. I just, she was just my own uh, great grandma Rose. Wow. Well, you knew your great grandparents. Yeah. That's unusual. Yeah. Yeah. And you, and you grew up in Alabama. I have to ask yeah. you, have you listened to this podcast, S-Town? Everyone keeps talking about S-Town. <laughs> I don't I'm know. I'm obsessed with I have, it. I, everyone's, everyone's yeah. obsessed with S-Town. No, I have to listen to it, obviously. If I've you're just from Alabama, been, yeah. it would be a crime not to listen. I have to listen. What I, I did watch um, that uh, season of that show. The first season was actually kind of beautiful. Um, True to detective with Matthew McConaughey and Woody Harrelson. And some of that was shot down in Bayou country. And that, uh, looks a lot like where I went to research this book. So I went down to Bayou Labatry where I have some land and it was just so, you know, okay. I, it's, 
there's there's more to the story than just the you know you can't go home thing which is pretty obvious that i can't go live there my nearest <laughs> neighbor was day drinking under a confederate flag uh-huh. all right this is not going to work for right, me right right but there's you know a lot to be said for um I don't know, just appreciating different parts of the country that you're connected to. And I I learned a lot about um, my own family's history. And the crazy thing is, is that I think that the, that any, really any immigrant story, unless you're an immigrant who comes over with a huge fortune, resembles every other immigrant story. And that has unexpectedly seemed very timely to me. Um, there's a story that I tell in my book about I'm on my way to the airport to go to Alabama to research my family. Traffic's so bad in LA, you know, that I'm talking to my Uber driver. Actually, I was really just talking to him because I didn't want him to give me a five. I wanted him to give me a five-star rating because suddenly I was like, oh my God, I got to get a good rating. It's getting really worried. (laughs) Wait, they rate you. They rate you. You rate them and they rate you. And I was doing some complaining about the traffic and I thought, oh shit, I'm going down here so I'm getting like a two star that could that and that actually affects if people want to pick you up right which is just too much like tinder so right swipe right swipe, swipe left uh, uh, to get to get a ride to the airport i have to so which i really resent like i i feel like you should be allowed to not be nice on the ride to the airport just call yellow cab you can bitch you the can, whole way there you can totally do that yeah. but i did the uber thing and so so i started asking my Uber driver, where he was from, and he tells me this story about his village in Feruza, which is outside of homes in Syria. He can't go back there, and his family, his immigrant family, and it was just fascinating. And because I, I don't actually, as you know, I'm a big old liberal, but I don't actually know any immigrants from Syria. I, you know, it's so weird that you say that. I was searching on the internet today, like. Where are the Syrian refugees in L.A.? Like, well, some of them happen to live near me in Glendale. And um, I, when I went down to Alabama, it just happened to be the same time as our state senator, now Attorney General Jeff Sessions, oh my God. Uh, tried to pass a law banning immigrants from Syria. Well, refugees, but that's a, you know, immigrants, refugees. There's a, there's a lot of... Uh, the, Two terms are fairly interchangeable at a certain point. So I get back to L.A. I track my Uber driver down. He invites me to his house for dinner. So I went to dinner with my Uber driver's family, and they made me these Syrian dishes. And actually, we're going to be celebrating my book lunch next week at Skylight. He better have given you five stars. That's all i got to say. I hope so. (laughs) I really hope so. Um, But, you know, their story reminded me so much of our family's story, the way that they've slowly saved up to bring family members over, the, the, the going into business together, the pooling the resources. They have markets that they own. I, it, we had dry goods. It's, it's, this, it's a similar path. And, and this is not complicated. It's not everyone, complicated. Everyone here is a fucking immigrant. Right. Why are we, and you know, and it's just, it's, what is it, racism? It's Islamophobia. It's tribalism. It's tribalism. That, that's, that's sort of why, you know, it was a little bit confusing, I think, for some people, even me. This The subtitle of my book was not my idea, and I, I like it. Uh, you know, the stories about my family you might relate to. When I 
sort of labored over that in a way that maybe nobody cares about. But um, I thought, is this good? Are people going to understand that when I say family, I mean all the families. I mean that in all the people I consider to be family, not just my own personal family. But then stories about my families you might relate to, that didn't work. And just my publishers, they really liked this um, subtitle. And I thought, okay, I'll go for it. And I'm... This is one of those stupid author marketing things, trying to, trying to make sure people know what the book is. Yeah. And I just don't know that. I I just wonder if that's going to, um, I well, I suspect a little bit that, that it will confuse some people over what exactly the book is. And of course that was a, something I thought about. It would have been in in a certain way. Um, I don't want to say easier, but it was maybe easier if I'd written a book just about my family stories and I certainly had enough of them. Um, but that wasn't uh, the thing that really interested me. Finding your tribe. You have various tribes. That makes sense to me. Yes. Um, it's, if you, if you're really an idiot and you, find yourself late at night Googling your reviews on Goodreads. <laughs> I don't know <laughs> what you're talking about. You will find out that some readers, some early readers are a little confused about what your book is about. <laughs> Not that I've memorized any of them, but I thought this was going to be a book about her family. So I was a little confused by these. Well, you know, so yeah, I published a novel called attention deficit disorder. So you can imagine like it was like shelved in the, <laughs> the medical section at bookstores and you know, it's just a disaster. You know, it's so, oh, this world is so, um, vexing in all the fabulous ways that the voluminous pleasures of the universe are open and available to us online, but the also way that it 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 closes conversations to these very small subsets and then makes you miss things. I mean, that is, I guess, the thing that is most um, terrifying about this new world is you, what I, I think about some of my favorite experiences were the ones that I happened upon by accident. Yeah. And now, you know, you, you hope people will happen upon your book, but will they? Because they're being directed towards things that they already like. I've never actually seen this before, but this just happened last night. Like in that way that the marketing is getting so particularized to you. That's not the right word, but I'm going with it anyway. So it's, it, what is it? Tar- it's a targeted marketing. So last night I was working really late and then just doing some stupid Googling. Why? I can't really explain. That's because you have a book coming out. You're Googling. Right. Just do stupid Googling of faux sheep, uh, lumbar pillows. Because oh. can you ever have enough lumbar pillows? <laughs> I mean, particularly if you're a writer. I was going to say the lumbar is like it's just like the so important. It's so, critical. You need a good publisher, but you need a good lumbar pillow just as much. Which I don't know which one is more important, right? You so, can't have one without the so other. So I'm looking at lumbar pillows, and then I'm click on some YouTube video for some Regina Spector new song. Yeah, and. It's also, a, also, I believe, uh, Russian Jewish. Also, Russian Jewish. Yeah. She's so fantastic. I, she's so much better than me at what she does. It's just a miracle. But anyway, so there's a an ad that comes on, and it's for 
Pottery Barn, which is the site that I was, they, you know, they obviously in the interweb got it. And not only that, in the middle of the ad, it started having pictures of that lumbar pillow that yeah. I had just clicked on. Like the, the, the elves inside my computer were working so fast. I was like, gee, that That's was creepy. Odd. So unbelievable. It was so And fast. now they can sell your data. Now they can sell every, like your entire browsing history <sighs> without your consent. You know, like I don't even know what the implications of that are, but it sounds really well, eerie. Well, it is weird also when you're, if you venture into journalism at all, I'm always looking up uh, for writing like I I write op-eds and essays and so I'm always looking up really a a, a huge variety of topics and subjects and products and things I'm gonna so I get really diverse marketing and it pisses I'm mad marketing elves they don't they're not I feel like they're not targeting me at all because while I was doing all this research on um, for this book on home health care products because I was part of the book about taking care of my parents. You know how many ads for adult diapers I get when I turn on my computer? It's depressing, man. Like, stop it, people. I'm done with that book now, okay? Enough of the adult That's diapers. That's true. If you're doing research, if you're, you know, you're, you're writing a book or you're working journalistically and you're doing research, you're going to be casting your net wide i need like the browser that is like just researching just (laughs) filter this please fetishistic porn that's just researching (laughs) i promise i am not really trying to go there (laughs) no no just Uh, research so Mm -hmm. tell me about i'm curious about you as a girl, like how long were you in Alabama as a child? When did you move to Miami? Not long. We uh, we kind of got kicked out because my dad owed everyone money. My dad was a gambler as well. Uh-huh. And he just family tradition. So what, at a certain point, I was like five or six, we, we, um, we got kicked out of town. And I actually never knew why. Researching this book, it, it did, it sort of put some pieces together for me. Um, the reason why I tell that story is... Um, I'm telling the story for two purposes. One is to set up this idea of what kind of person goes off and tries to join other tribes. And um, including, I was in a UFO cult for a little while in my 20s. Like, what kind of person wait, does Wait, wait, that? wait, 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 pause. You were in a UFO cult? Yeah, that's in the book too. Yeah, okay, ta- talk to families. me. Talk to me about I, this. You know, it was the 80s in New York and... Um, a lot of people were doing est and things that restricted your bathroom usage. Not going to do that. I went to the landmark forum of for a long you weekend did. for yes. book research uh-huh. uh, when I was in my early twenties, and it was bizarre. Yeah, I had friends who ran the landmark uh, thing. They were you probably know them. <laughs> Terrifying. I won't incriminate them. Only me. I'm only going to say that. I mean, yeah, yeah. Those, everyone was doing that, or they were chanting Nam Yoho Renge Kyo or something like that, and. I just met some people who were doing psychic new agey stuff and they just happened to be in communication with aliens who were arranging to come and pick us up and take us back to the home planet, which just seemed pretty reasonable. Were you doing a lot of drugs? I was not doing enough drugs to justify that, (laughs) but I just do want to say, you know, it wasn't a group that required, so it's not 
It's not really the, if people get very snippy about this, like, you know, it's not really a cult you were in Annabelle because you didn't, uh, you weren't, it's not like Scientology where they track you down and try to ruin your life. They taking your money? Take your No, they did not do any of that. Okay. The reason why I use that word is because I think that that word accurately reflects the totality of the deific vision that we were all ascribing to, which was pretty intense. The idea was that we were all reincarnated from the family of Pharaoh Akhenaten in the 18th dynasty in Egypt. And this bonding as this reincarnated family was setting this up for this People are just going to think I'm crazy <laughs> karma to leave the planet and go back to the home planet. So that's so extreme. Who who, who was the no. point person on this? Was there somebody who was, there somebody was must a, have been very there convincing. There was a psychic person. The thing was, he actually, he died of AIDS, which is how I ended up in California. Because when he got sick, it was the 80s and he died, everything fell apart. And it was kind in of... In New York. In New York. Uh, I was living in, I had gone to NYU and then was acting in New York. Um, the thing was, was... There was no, you know, coercion to to believe this stuff. I just went for it. It just, this was part of that, I think, part of that whole trajectory of coming from a family that was so fragmented and so unstable, rich, poor, rich, poor. We were always losing everything and looking for my people. And these were a group of artists in the West Village. I was the youngest person in that group for the years I was junior member, a junior member. (laughs) And they were like my family. Yeah. And, um, I actually owe them a a really big debt of gratitude for being so kind to me. And so supportive of me when I was in, I just, my parents had lost their money. I dropped out of school because there wasn't money. And what they, they didn't do was I didn't really know how to become, um, emancipated and I couldn't get, I couldn't get uh, financial aid because my parents wouldn't give me their tax returns because they actually hadn't paid taxes. My dad was involved in ab scam, that CIA, FBI thing is nuts. Yeah. So, you know, perfect storm for psychic people who <laughs> believe in aliens. You know, I see the thing is that I find sort of astonishing about that. Now it's so, it's such a, so long ago for me. I mean, that's that's in the distant past of kid. my life. I was a, I was older than I should have been to well, be doing that. You were in your twenties. In my twenties, you're a kid. Well, you know, now I seem like a kid. Um, but the thing was, was um, I, I really have a lot of compassion. I've sort of developed a certain kind of compassion from besides hating myself for that thing. That was the stupidest thing because I can I see how. Um, really damaged I was from that crazy upbringing Um, because I did not have a sense of humor back then. (laughs) I was just very serious. And um, perhaps if I had had a sense of humor, I would have thought this is ridiculous. (laughs) But I, and and the crazy part is I realize now maybe some of those people weren't all in the way I was all in. I actually through the miracle of Facebook and the internet, someone tracked me down recently and we had coffee, someone in that group. 
And she said, you know, I never really believed I was Queen Elizabeth. It's revisionist yeah. history. Uh, no, I, I do believe that. And she said, did you really think you were the reincarnated daughter of the Pharaoh? I was like, absolutely. <laughs> I had no problem imagining that I was a princess in another life. You were the earnest, you were the yeah. earnest junior member. You, you know, completely. So not everybody might have been in a cult. It might have been just me who was in a cult. They were just, you know, hanging out with some people smoking a certain amount of pot. Title of your next book, Alone in a Cult. Yeah, it's, it's completely possible that that was the case, wow. which is, that's ridiculous. Okay. So you say that you were very mm -hmm. serious then, but mm -hmm. then you got a sense of humor. Mm -hmm. Can you track it? Like when did the sense of humor uh, flower? It is just a slow process of more humiliating things happening <laughs> in my life and starting. To, I, I actually, that's what I do think if I do anything, it's sort of the comedy of humiliation um, because just ridiculous things isn't happen it, isn't to it, me all I the time. I think I was thinking about this stuff the other day, like behavior of mine when I was a teenage boy. I was such an idiot, like with girls, mm -hmm. like I didn't know what I was doing sloppy drunk stupid like we all have sloppy drunk stupid <laughs> I, that's another book that just you could but write i just i like i was i don't know what brought it into my mind but i was thinking back to like moments and like my face was getting hot and i just was like oh god like i don't think i can ever forgive myself for that like i know i have to i think most people probably can process this stuff more quickly and just get on with life but I can easily get stuck there and just be like, you know what? This, this one went all wrong. We need to do over. Do, do you mm -hmm. know what I'm saying? Yes, I do. Well, that, that's always more my psychology tempts me to go up like, this life's not working out. <laughs> do over. Can we just wipe the sweat I like the slate just, clean? This is not, this is not as planned. And I just hit a level of, of like how many experiences like that could I have? Just silly. I mean, just the kind of things everybody goes through. And I, I don't know what happened, but it just sort of all turned into it just something happened when I moved to Los Angeles. And I. You got funny. I guess I got funny. Did you I find a funny knew. tribe? Like, because I think sometimes if. That's true. I did. I met my um, husband, Jeff Kahn, who was a partner of Ben Stiller's. And. Uh, they were all really funny. It was Janine Garofalo, Bob Odenkirk, David Cross. All those people came into my life. And they were all really funny. And I still think they... I, I, I don't think of myself as funny. I've been put in that category, and I'm happily so. I don't have a problem. I mean, people are like you know, like have a problem with that. I don't have a problem with that. You know, great. Any category you want to just fantastic. Funny is a good category. Funny is a good category. Um, and people seem to, you know, to, to laugh at my writing, which is fantastic, but I, I just don't think of myself that way. And I got involved in sort of like improv. And when I started doing that show dinner in a movie, I did for a number of years, that was really popular. And it was, that worked for me because the thing was, was I, I never, I just didn't see the same kind of thing. Like I was reading for a lot of sitcoms when I came out as an actress and I came out to Los Angeles, not when I came, I have not, uh, sadly, I am not coming out right here uh, because this would be a everybody else is doing it. I kind of feel really left out. But I'm no just plain happen. old cisgender <laughs> Jewish lady atheist gal funny lady 
boring. Um, but uh, it's funny because I would um, read for sitcoms and um, I would read the, work on the script with my husband, Jeff, and he would say, you're, you're not, um, you're not setting up the joke, right? I'm like, which is the joke? I just didn't have that kind of sense of humor. I just was a little more offbeat sense of humor. And I was, then I would get parts on dramatic series and be really funny in those parts. Cause I, I was like, Oh, well that's really, I just was a little more oddball. The funny thing is now, of course, I think television has gotten so much more oddball. Like the sensibility of television writ large has moved in your direction. Yeah. 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 It's it, well, I moved into writing. Yeah, <laughs> so, you're moving uh, away. <laughs> yeah. But, uh, which is just ridiculous, but it is funny. Cause I, I just like, I just remember going to the taping of the pilot of friends and saying that'll never last. You were there. Uh huh. Yeah. I went, yeah, I'd read for the show. This is no one will like this shit. I've got it by divine. That's not going anywhere. I just, the worst <laughs> judge of this stuff. I mean, I was luckily like I had a little part in Seinfeld, which I did didn't even understand why what I was people were laughing at what I was doing. I never understood when I I did a bunch of comedy shows that I never quite understood. Like like uh, what do you call it? Like guest appearances. Yeah, I did that. Um, what did you do on Seinfeld? I'm not an aficionado. I was so. a friend of George's. No, friend of. Um, of Elaine's who was friends with Marissa Tomei and George is trying to, Jason Alexander is trying to get my, her phone number out of me. And then I fall into a coma and he's still trying to get the phone number. Gotcha. Um, <laughs> I mean, you know, I just did a lot of these things and I just never thought they were funny. Of course I did a movie with my friend Bill Maher called pizza man. That is probably the worst thing ever recorded on film within a certain time. I mean, there's a lot of bad movies. This is old. This is old school. Like Bill Maher. When did Bill... This is in the 80s. Um, So prior to Politically Incorrect. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Uh And we did this movie together. And um, within that time period of, let's say, 1980 to 2000, it's probably in the top 10 of worst movies ever. (laughs) I thought it was hilarious. (laughs) I just like... I still... I just think I... Sometimes I'll be in like a theater seeing a play and I'm the only one laughing. I just... It's idiosyncratic. I just a little, as it turns out, it's sort of why um, I am perhaps uh, what I always say my nickname is an acquired taste. (laughs) (laughs) I'm not for everyone. (laughs) I'm just. But you don't want to be. You don't want to be. Yeah, because that would be the way that you get really rich. rich. (laughs) (laughs) I'm the same way. I I just thought, you know, someone was saying, uh, who shall go unnamed the other day, something about um, some TV showrunner who's like a hack. Like, oh, you know, I'm just so beyond judging anyone for anything they do. I'm like, oh, it's so sad. He's a hack with. $400 $400 million. <laughs> what, you should just do whatever. I mean, I, they were like, they were saying, why did, why does this particular writer, why does he keep doing it? It shows that they're not anything new. I'm like, maybe that person, that's what, that's what he likes. Yeah. You know, that's the crazy thing is there are things I just don't understand that are on television in movie theaters. I just don't get it, but there's something for everyone. And you just really, hope. I mean, more you know, than ever, there is yes. something for Everyone. I know like, it's I can't, a little too niche. It's too much. Really. My cat has a podcast now. <laughs> I'm trying to get booked on it. Can't. <laughs> Apparently, I'm just not. You know, my cat's thing. You know, so you know, just not, not, not for, not for them. That's. I'm hoping for a hamsters podcast. You gotta. Just, you gotta. I think you gotta narrow. Like you say, you can't. Like, why waste energy judging anybody for their creative efforts? 
focus on what makes you happy, what you can derive some enjoyment from creating, do it the best you can. Well, that, yeah, that's the thing though. If you have like, I, one of my favorite things to do in life is to just give a really well thought out takedown on a piece of art or a book or a play or something like that. Even in, in writing, like write one or say, or no, you mean, just over dinner. Yeah. You know, good takedown, <laughs> yeah. you know, preferably the less I know about it, the better. Um, but, but the thing is when you, if you're going to enjoy that, then you must make the pact that you know that someone somewhere is saying the same thing about you. Right. <laughs> and, and you just hope that there are enough people, places, and things in the world that, uh, that are attracted to the ridiculous stuff that comes out of your brain or your computer. And since you have the strong feelings, people will have strong feelings. And like, I mean, that is, that is the crazy thing about writing that's different than acting for me, which is, I mean, they're, they're so related in a lot of ways. People will say, oh, they're the same kind of creative thing. Well, no, um, it's kind of the opposite thing where I've had to learn how to, to create something alone in a room where on my whole life as an actor. And I started working when I was 19. So that was all a collaborative effort. So it's kind of a 360 sort of creative turn, but, um, the ownership over the work, uh, is so, it's so satisfying when you have that individual relationship with that reader and a reader, you meet a reader and they're like, Oh, I love that thing. And I, I like footnotes. I like, I just have a thing. I just love little details and little facts and I love science. So I always love to put in a little bit of anthropology. I'm an anthropology buff. I'm sure I'm getting everything wrong, but I do try to do a certain amount of, I'm an enthusiast. (laughs) (laughs) I am, I'm intelligence adjacent. And so I am just one Google away from the right fact at all times. So I always like to have little, and someone will say, Oh, that thing you wrote about whatever. I just, that, just it's so personal whereas you know as an as an actor there are so many things sometimes i was lucky enough to be in something really good like Like well like um uh there was a wendy wasserstein play that i did donald margulies play i've worked with some fantastic um playwrights just lucky enough to stand on the stage and say their words you don't have to do that much you have to be good enough to get out of the way of that be able to be present in a moment but they're doing all this heavy lifting creating these this work for you and so um having been luck i when I've collaborated like with Bob Odenkirk, those I'm really proud of a movie we did together. Again, as just just other people's work that I got to have a chance to. Well, yeah, when, when you're for. acting, you're like a tool. And not to say that you know, act there aren't actors who are genius and bring so much. And I, I'm not. And I mean to take away because I more the further away that I get from spending my life acting, I am even more amazed when you see great performances because it's so hard to take all those things that are going on in the, around you. And I think about the missed opportunities I had to, because I just couldn't turn off 
all the thoughts about like that we're, this person that I'm working with is, oh, I'm not allowed to look at Eddie Murphy in the eye. Really? When you're, yeah. When you're Tell acting me opposite you, you, him. You can't look him in the eye? No, you're not supposed to look him in the, only when the camera is rolling and you can't shake hands with him and you can't, all these kind of things. What the fuck? What is Eddie Murphy? But that's whatever. weird. Uh, yeah, but there are, that's just an example. There are a lot, there are a number of people like that, but people know how to work with that sort of thing. I was often distracted by that sort of thing. And so I'm amazed at actors. So not to take anything away from that, but as a writer, I do get this term. It was just a point about how the satisfaction of the long hours of writing when someone appreciates your work is kind of it's kind of a miracle. Not that I believe in miracles. It's total ownership of the creative process and and it's total ownership of the creative product too. I mean, you're the, it's just you within the constraints again of like, uh, the choices you and your editors, there are definitely, there are constraints for sure. But yes, there are so many, there is so much more ownership, let's say. And it's so the processes I find writing just, horrible um so the process is so hard i'm definitely i mean who, who is it who said having written is great writing yeah. is hard. i mean you know it's i'm that i'm that person um me too uh but i do i love it when i can when i feel i've created a sentence that i'm proud of i find that does like i that's what i call a brain gasm my brain gets so <laughs> happy that i've been able to wrestle that onto the page but it is not an easy thing for me i definitely did not pick something that's i feel like it was easy um so i don't feel like um, it's easy for very i mean it can't be easy for very many people almost nobody i talk to that's true i i always suspect though that everything is easier for other people than it is for me and maybe that's not true but i that's just my psychology always tells me oh that person they probably aren't I mean, I feel like my attention span has gotten so short. It's so, I've started doing this thing that, um, a writer that I share that office with said, oh, you do 25 minutes, uh, writing and then you have a five minute break 20 and you have to write down the times and then check it off. And I've used that to, I mean, I'm like, I'm that, that's what it's come to. I mean, I'm old enough that I grew up without the internet. How did I do it? How did I cross the street without checking my email halfway <laughs> through the crosswalk? I mean, it's pathetic. I'm that person it now. Happens fast. I hate it. And I, and I, I feel like my brain is like a potato chip mm. at times. And so it's it's a struggle, you yeah. know, and I have to do all kinds of ridiculous little tricks with myself of like, you know, sitting in different places and to, to get the writing out, which is, you know, you kind of feel like, really? Is it hard for everybody? Is <laughs> yeah. this... Do I have to take these extreme... Does everybody have to take these extreme measures just to like right. enforce and concentration? Exactly. And, I, and the thing is, is I'm not... I, I really am not that person who, and I just want, I I don't, I'm not a teacher by trade, but I do teach workshops. I lead workshops sometimes. And there's always someone who asks, does it ever just come poor? No, no, I don't know anyone who ever says that, but that doesn't mean I don't sit down at my desk and write every day. I'm also, I don't, if you're waiting for that, I was just talking with a friend of mine who is a scientist and, um, so funny because her brain, you'd think she could write because it's such an organized brain with, with science background, biologist, but she's having trouble writing. Just, just, you know, I mean, I'm sure you've, we, we all know this phrase. I said, write the 
to give yourself permission to write the worst first draft. Just write the worst, don't even think book, write the worst chapter, write the worst page you can ever, I mean, just start. But I, I definitely subscribe to that idea of, uh, is it subscribe or subscribe? Subscribe. Subscribe, yes. Um, and I'm smart. Um, <laughs> you know, that you, you, you just have to, you can't wait for inspiration. Waiting for inspiration. I could be waiting till my next life as a reincarnation of. <laughs> By the way, I just, I'm not only am I an atheist, I'm just a. There's just very little I believe in. I just just want to make that very clear. I have left that All behind. Yes. I'm actually going on tour with Richard Dawkins. I'm very excited about that. Are you really? Yeah. Um, you know, I am that big old atheist. I just got involved in the secular humanist confab um, because... Like, like related to your book or are you going on tour just separately to... With my book and to... And I'll be interviewing him. He'll be interviewing me. We're just doing a... I'm just lending my name to the cause and I'll be doing talks and signings at a bunch of, uh, Secular humanist conventions. There's always somebody <laughs> dressed up like Thomas Paine, oh, really? and they've made their own costume. Really? Which is, it's just, it's just like any religious I think, I think, group. I think you and, have to make your own Thomas Paine costume. There's not a lot of call for that. They don't sell those. They're, they they're not retailing. Not, there's not a lot. There's not a big call for that. But you know, there's a. It's it's interesting. I have gotten involved because of things like the pressing issue of climate change and what we will see coming climate refugees and because of rising religious intolerance and things like travel bans i think that the uh secular humanist people are called upon to try to campaign to keep religion out of government so that's my entry into it i'm not i'm not like someone who wants to sit around uh it's funny because i resisted these kinds of invitations. Do you want to debate so-and-so whether there's a God or not? I'm not real. I'm not interested in that talk. You, you, I'm not trying to take anyone's, you know, God away from them. I'm just interested in how we, um, protect, uh, our society from religious, uh, intolerance and rising, religiosity that we see in society, which by the way, impacts most detrimentally women. Right. Right. So, yeah, so I mean, there's that. Yeah, no. And it's about, like, I think it's about, uh, and science education. I mean, these things are also linked, which is why I felt the imperative to get involved in these groups. It's, there's just this sort of canard and sort of a, a cliche about like, you just sit around and talk about whether there's no God. No, that's just not really what the conversation is about now. It's really a conversation about how we protect science and reason. Separation and of church and state. Yes. I mean, but it's just so far beyond that now, right now with just the separation of facts and alternate facts. Yeah. Yeah. So that's even, even that's, that's really this next important place. Not just, well, you see it happening. You see, I mean, not to get uh, too explicitly mm-hmm. political. Like, I mean, it's, it's hard not to be in this day and age. I, I keep is, talking yeah. to, I keep talking to guests on the show about it, but you just see it over and over and over again, that every time a fact-based narrative that the Trump administration is not pleased with presents itself they immediately create a counter narrative that is then embraced by the right wing media and spun and spun and spun and spun and spun. And they're not equal because the one right. that, the, that, I mean, yeah. there's no facts, but they just create their own, they create their own story. And then there's a media apparatus that's there ready to embrace it. 
That's an insane system. Yeah. And, you know, it's hard to see where that's going to go right now. And uh, what do we have in the face of that? I think what we, the, you know, the hope though, it's funny because I think it's actually connected with this, this horror that I have at my brain is becoming a potato chip because I think that. Why a potato chip? Uh, but just easy, snackable, gone in a second. Oh, right. okay. It just it needs to be satisfied. You can't eat one. You just, you just, it's like a, your brain goes into that monkey mind of like, yeah, you yeah, just yeah. gobble it all up. Yeah. Where you like, so, you wake up at six in the morning and the first thing you do is reach for your phone. Yeah. Like that's a weird, uh, I find is, myself doing that and I'm it like, is. what am I, what am I doing? And I've tried to, and I, I just realized I had a thing I was doing really well for like three weeks. I was like, don't Google, uh, Trump stupidity <laughs> or words like Trump idiot, angry Cheeto uh, after 10 o'clock at night. Yeah. And then right. of course, 1230 at night last night, I, I did it. I broke my potato chip. It's a potato chip. The anti potato chip for the brain is reading That's right. and writing yeah. because that requires so much more thought. And so I feel like that is still the hope that we have and the hope for myself is I feel like I have to constantly be in a battle to regain my, my brain back. And I think that brains that are focused on long form aren't, this is just my theory, but I'm going to go for it. Yeah. Brains that are able to focus on long form, on holding longer attention spans, perhaps would not be as susceptible would not be as susceptible to the alternate fact universe because we are, they are, I don't want to say we, because I'm potato chip over here, but they are fostering a kind of critical thinking. Reading and writing fosters a critical thinking that the potato chip brain can't, that potato chip brain, I'm going to be working on that, uh, <laughs> they can't, can't hold. And so maybe that is our, just our greatest hope. Slow food. Slow food. Yeah, I, yeah, I'm with you. And and um, just to go back uh, before I forget, because I do want to ask you about this. Mm-hmm. I think you sort of started to talk about it, mm-hmm. but um, usually when I, I have writers on the show who have been art, who have made art in another medium, it seems mm-hmm. to be musicians. Mm-hmm. I haven't talked to too many actors who have, who have then written books. When you decided to pursue this, was it in reaction to frustration with the collaborative nature of um, doing plays or making TV shows or films and feeling like you didn't have the control that you wish you did over the whole process because as an actor and, and this is what I was trying to say uh, earlier is like you know you are sort of uh, you're a piece of the puzzle yeah no not at all not at all uh, not at all that wasn't my thought at all in fact there wasn't a lot of thought that went into this. <laughs> Sadly, if there had been a lot of thought, I would have taken a class in, in sitcom writing and I, I could just be a gazillionaire. Um, no, not a lot of thought. What happened was I was, when I started writing as I was acting, I started writing for NPR. I was a commentator. I was writing in this short form, personal essays and started publishing essays. I fell in love with the essay. Is I, and I still have a love affair with an essay because for me, an essay is sort of the perfect argument. I Something about that, it does. It just makes my brain so good. I fell in love with the writing of 
really, it's just so silly, but well, William Gass, I just, and, and David Rakoff and, um, Megan Dom, there's just a bunch of writers that I just love so much. Um, John Jeremiah Sullivan, there's a few writers that, that combined these first person essay and narratives and essay writing. And I, I just love the essay so much that when it was sort of a natural progression from writing single published essays to then wanting to publish books of essays. That's not a good thought. That, I mean, that's like, that's not like a thought out thing. That's not because I just didn't actually realize the life I was creating for myself in terms of, um, the amount of alone time. And I also didn't, I didn't really know where it was taking me in terms of, um, that it would sort of take over my life the way it's taken over my life. Uh, that was not a plan. How so? Just meaning that the Just time the amount demands? of time. And yeah. I've had to say I, I've had to take myself out of acting because I just, it, it just always can, can, there's always a conflict between the time something's going to shoot. Cause I'm not, I mean, if I was a, um, a bigger name in that field, you can do that. You know, Michael Ian Black has had, a, makes a very interesting and compelling case for someone who's, um, writing books and managing to do great performances. I just not, I'm not in that position. People aren't going to wait for me. So when they'll say, Oh, there's this project, I'm, I've got a book thing. I just can't, I haven't been able to juggle that. Actually, I'm just changing a date of, of, of one of my book tour dates to fit in a little part on a show that I really like called better things with Pam Adlon and Louis CK. Oh, wow, so yeah. I'm going to do one day on that and I have to miss a book event, which I normally wouldn't do, but I just love that show so much. Um, so it's been hard to juggle the two I try to do, and I've managed to do for the last few years, a play a year. So I have people that I collaborate with in theater on a regular basis. And so I try to make sure I have that kind of situation, um, available to me because that takes care of a certain kind of creative need. Yeah. Um, how long does a play run usually? I guess it depends. It really depends. You know, I've done things that have been more and less limited runs. A play I did of Donald Margulies is the, at the Geffen theater in LA that ran for like three months. I was, I was actually editing my last book in the dressing room there. This book I edited in a dressing room in Santa Barbara where I did a short run of a play by Wendy McLeod, who's one of my favorite playwrights. So, you know, I, I will try to sort of set that up for myself as much as a person can. So I know I have uh, that kind of experience to go to. Um, but there's just sadly, uh, been, uh, less, I, I wish I could say it was more plotted out, but I don't know that many people get to really plot out these career paths. Um, I, you as, know, I marvel at anybody who has like some over yeah. overarching sense of strategy and really can play, you know, well, play the game. It's really interesting if you can get yourself in that position. So my friend Jane Kaczmarek, who started Malcolm in the Middle, I just went to see her in Long Day's Journey in tonight. And she was just fantastic. And I was surprised. I mean, that's a big show to take. So I'm like, oh, that's a show to take on. I mean, 
And I, I, I said, what's, what's going on? She said, well, I just joined the Yates Society. And next I'm going to be doing an adaptation of, she said, this is what I want to do with my life right now. And of course, that's a great um, balance. When I was on Dinner in a Movie, I had a chance to do a lot of independent films. And Dinner in a Movie was on? It was a show on TBS. On it was TBS. just a thing on Friday nights. It was comedy and cooking and uh, it was was it it interstitial while the movie played yes yes so it was it was actually a great gig at the i got to make a lot of movies and low budget movies it didn't matter how little money they were paying or if i was paying you know for the movie to get made (laughs) because i had this tv gig so that was a time when i did have things very sketched out at this point i don't know all bets are off i'm i'm going in these directions and writing has taken over my life, but, um, I'm not sure what, what's next after this book. I, I'm actually not, not sure. Well, it's, I mean, no one, most people, I think it's natural to not know what's next for a little while once you've gone through a whole book project, but for somebody who works in the personal essay form, is there a fear that like, well, I've told all my stories. Now I need to go have some other stuff happen. <laughs> you know, in the abstract, except, man, life keeps just, I, if I was joking with someone, I'm going to write a book. My next book is going to be called. So that was that year because over the last year I lost both my parents. Uh, the cat ran away. I'm getting divorced. <laughs> uh, oh, my son went off to college. I'm an empty nester. So I, I, what, what just happened? I have... That's if a book I, if right I there. wanted to just write about all the the incredible way that people have run from me, um, actually, at last count, three people since I finished this book who are pictured on the cover of my book have now died. <laughs> I oh felt a little God. bit like de totus angle. I'm not on there, am I? You think? I know people are like, wait, who's on the cover? I'm not. My other cousins are like, oh, I feel good today. It's a good day. Oh, that book of yours, that curse. Um, so, uh, you know, I feel like there's no end of material. Of course, I'm not just, hopefully, this just my opinion. I'm not just writing about these events of my life. I'm writing about this particular time in life or this in the context of something in the world. I also just really enjoy satire. So I'm like working on some little piece right now about guidelines for safe space dining for vice president hot guy mike pence he can (laughs) find a way to eat dinner with women without having them want to depant him at every moment so i you know i like writing about the world as not just you know my own life but um i do my interest in the last couple books has been how i always say i'm using memoir to look at issues that are in the cultural zeitgeist. And so there's no end of life happening around us in different contexts that we're living in. I mean, my God, we're in the end times. Anything <laughs> could happen. Truly, so truly. Uh, I, I, I really believe that. I mean, I mean you don't it, want to sound crazy and you don't want to sound alarmist, but there's part of me that's like, do I need like an escape plan? I know. You know, you know what this has done for me? Some people have been saying, oh, I lost weight or I gained weight because of the Trump administration. I'm going to, sounds really, I mean, of all, it's so, it's, this is really. Trump weight. Trump weight. Yeah. I've got like, it's like baby weight, Trump weight. I've got a little Trump weight right now because I've been going, when I'll, when I'll pass by the bakery section of a store, I'll think, what an amazing achievement 
70,000 years of homo sapien life and we can make a croissant. How do we do that? There's so much butter in that one little piece of bread. It's so flaky. Jesus Christ, we could be bombed back to the Stone Ages. I'm going to eat that fucking (laughs) croissant while I can. It may be the last croissant we get. Right. Trump weight. Enjoy every sandwich. That's the saying, right? I know, but I mean, really, there seems to be so much instability. You just don't know when you're going to get a good meal again. That's it. That is so Jewish. (laughs) I'm like, I just went right back to the Judaism. I'm not Jewish. I followed that all the way. You know, um, it's funny because I actually just little note, I note this in my book, something that I think is very, something I understand now. I didn't understand it, of course, when I was a kid. You know, I write about growing up in these, you know, you, you always belong to a temple or a synagogue and watching the Altacaca ladies, the old ladies, they would always, their purses were lined with napkins and they would always put the the cookies in their bag after the Oneg Shabbat. That's the little thing you do after you go, you live through that service. So you get the, the cookies, sugar, you yeah. get the cookies, right? Which are never really good, but. <laughs> so, so they always be shoveling them in and, you know, you make fun of them. Oh, I want to look at that. They're taking this cookie. Now, I mean, not only because of the Trump times, but I do understand my gosh, when I think about the time period, these were women who had lived through the depression. These were women who might have fled, uh, whatever kind of persecution, Nazi persecution. I mean, this, the stories of these older women, I just, of course they don't couldn't occur to you as a, as a kid who'd grown up in the, even, even if being, being the way we were rich and poor in America, no comparison to the kinds of things these people have lived through. So, you know, I have a lot of compassion for that now and being the Trump era, I do feel I have to fight that urge to take cookies and put them into my bag. Well, at every moment. no, I get it. And I mean, it, and it's like, what occurs to me is how surreal it is when it's happening and how hard it is to believe. I can imagine, I mean, I can only imagine, but going back to like mid 20th century, the rise of the third Reich and all this crazy stuff, the rise of authoritarianism, you know, and, and you don't want to jump the gun and say, that's exactly what we're dealing with now. They're not comparable yet anyway, but in some ways that you can see parallels. Right. And so absolutely. It's, and- it's, 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 it's hard to believe sometimes what's happening and to know how how much to make of it and you you start to you start to feel insane like am i crazy right and also i mean this has been a i'm just gonna i'm doing this little thing for mcsweeney's called book publicity at resist (laughs) i have been completely (laughs) stumped as to you know you have you spend a couple years writing a book and then all of a sudden the world changes and there are you know quite a few i feel timely aspects of the book which are i feel are you know compelled to talk about but at the same time you know it's a comedic collection of essays and i and you as a as a artist or a writer you think you know what am i is it, is it okay to, to be doing this right now? Can I um, post on Facebook what I was going to post about? Hey, please come to my book site, Russian Spying. You know, <laughs> <laughs> how much time lag between please come to my book launch and right. I can't believe the latest lie. I mean, it's this sort of you feel uh, torn and am I okay with what I'm 
putting out in the world? Should my art be escapist art? Do people just want to forget about everything? Or would they prefer feeling there's something timely? But I think trying to find where you fit in as an artist in this time is very confusing. And, you know, part of, it's very tempting to just want to just rant. I'll just join the rant and just, oh, screw it. I want to march. Yeah. I got a march to go to. I, I want to march gonna... so bad. I, I just want to march somewhere. Well, then the question is, how many marches can I go to? Right. And then should I, but, but maybe I should be just marching. Screw this writing for now, but I actually have to pay my mortgage. <laughs> right. So, uh, mm, mm, it's yeah. really hard. To... It is. And, you know, like that urge to rant, the urge to retweet, which like I fall prey to all the time. I think it's like, you want to do something, you're feeling all of these emotions, but you also don't, I don't want to like just be in an echo chamber. I don't want to be because I, everyone on my Twitter feed, most of the people I talk to on mm-hmm. this show, most of the people in my life all feel the same way. Right. So what's a useful, what's a, what's the most useful thing to do? Right. You know? Um, and then how does that fit in with the way I earn a living yeah. and my passion or drive or need to create art to pay my mortgage, whatever it is that is pushing you on any given day, how, because, you know, not, not being in the, you know, nine to five world where you could be checking your Facebook and ranting, uh, in, on your breaks, you know, it, it's sometimes your entire day could threaten to turn into a break, but then what have you done? So yeah. I find it, I find it this extraordinary circumstance to be challenging on a personal bank account level, yeah. <laughs> on a personal moral and ethical level and a bank account <laughs> level. I'm deeply concerned about how I spend my time yeah. and I have not found a good answer. Maybe there's some way to combine personal essay, performance, politics. That sounds like humor. something I don't want to read. <laughs> <laughs> no, but it'd be like, I, I was thinking maybe it would be a performance or something. Or, oh God. Oh, that sounds horrible. It sounds horrible. Yeah. I mean, so actually when you put it that way, it's kind of interesting. So I think, huh, so maybe, maybe you have to go the, the other, the other way, you know, you have to go away from that because there's just nothing I'd rather not. Yeah, I, that sounds like an awful thing. I mean, it is really fun to... Sorry, I brought it up. No, no. I mean, I just like, oh, I'm going to go out tonight to see that play that's already about all those things I already think. Yeah, right. Yeah. Although, you know, it is interesting when you go and you see a piece of work that makes you think about well, it. makes you laugh. Right. Because that's like, I think people are just desperate for a laugh. It's such an unfunny so. time. That's true. Well, funny, ha ha, funny, peculiar. It's the other second kind. It's the funny, peculiar yeah. time for sure. Yeah. So, I mean, if there's a way to like alchemize it or, you know, I don't know. I feel sort of starved for that, but I, I hope you figure it out, you know? And then I'll call you. And then call me. And then I'll tweet <laughs> it and then you can retweet it. <laughs> And uh, maybe there's something about this whole brain as a potato chip thing. Maybe there's something there to mine. Oh, if only it wasn't a potato chip, I could mine it more. <laughs> Damn. There's still time. Can there's it be reversed? Time, I hope so. Can it be reversed? Oh, yeah, like, are I, we past I, the yeah. point of no return? No, no. I think I think it can be reversed, but it just it really takes like a lot of effort to turn a potato chip into, you know, a, a, a 
a full potato. A full potato. <laughs> to get that potato chip back to a full potato. It does. And I feel when I have moments of that, when I really do, when I'm just reading and focusing, and then I do feel so much better about... Like I just... Um, one night, I stayed up all night, which is not a good idea, but I did. I read uh, Cynthia Sweeney's The Nest, and you know what? It was fun. It was just plain fun. I had such a good time, and I just thought, you know, the, yeah, that's that's better than... That was good for me. It was good. Yeah. Yeah. I feel the same way, yeah. but yet I need to practice what I preach more often. Yeah. No, absolutely. I need to... I, I'll, I say it, but I have to... Actually, it takes... It takes work right now. Do you think do it's a, do you think it counts as reading a book if you listen to the audiobook? Okay, I this is one I haven't I haven't um I haven't tackled yet because I make audiobooks. I've never actually listened For your to own an books, audiobook. You yes. Okay. And um I know people really love it and I don't know if it counts. Because I want to say yes, because I want people to really want people to buy my audiobook. <laughs> I really do. Um, I think it's a great usage of time. Like if people like or say they run or they are in the car with it, for some reason, it, it's I, I just haven't done it, so I can't speak of it. But is it the same thing? Is I, it does yeah. it do the, something different to the brain? I'm I'm not sure. It is a focus. I mean, it is a different, it's, it's a deep focus because uh-huh. you have to pay If you're really going to follow the thing, mm-hmm. it, you have to listen deeply, but that's not the same thing as engaging with the page. Right. And so, but so I, I mean, I could just totally bullshit you and say, yes, it is the same thing. <laughs> that's or, what I was hoping or for. Or <laughs> no, it's not. And make an argument for that. I'm just being completely honest. I have no fucking idea because I've never actually listened to one. I, shouldn't say this because I make them, but I just, I just have, they're just like some things like I just, what do you listen a, to in the car? I Podcasts? listen to NPR yeah. nonstop. Uh-huh. I am a ridiculous person who cliche. <laughs> <laughs> just drinking your latte and listening I, to NPR. I still have my number. I, I'm that cliched person. And it, I'm sure it could be one of those things that I am like, I have no idea. And then I'll start listening to audiobooks and I'll be like, this is the greatest thing ever. So if you're listening to this, do not, let's talk about something. I feel like do not pay attention to my answer because I have no knowledge on the subject. Yeah. So I feel completely an inability to. Well, I ask for, I, I've been listening to a lot of them and mm-hmm. I listen at like double speed. It gives me a sense of achievement because I have all the, you know, I have this oh, like, that's not right. I know it's like this anxiety I have that I'm not reading enough, you know, uh-huh. and, I, and I, but then I got to fit it in because I've got kids and I got all, you know, it's like, I got to find it. And so like, if mm-hmm. I'm in the car or I'm grocery shopping, uh-huh. I can be like, okay, I can read now. I can at least ingest a book somehow. Well, yeah, then I think I'm just going to say, I, yeah, I, yeah, it's like reading. <laughs> it's I, a, I know people who love them. So yes, it's like reading. It's better than yes. nothing. It's better than listening to NPR all day. And I listen yeah. to the pledge drive. I'm that person. <laughs> I'm such a cliche. I'm just afraid to not have it on in case some new crazy thing happens. Yes. Just some crazy tweet or the end of the world is coming <laughs> in 30 seconds and I should know about it. That's it. Or you know, so I'm pledge drive. I listened to the pledge drive this week. Duh. I can't Duh. do it. I can't do it. What's wrong with me? <laughs> Did you give? <laughs> I have it taken out of my account every <laughs> yeah. month. I'm that person. KCRW. KP. No. Oh. KPCC. Uh oh. What? 
What? What? No? Wait. I don't know. I thought you were... No. KCRW is an NPR affiliate. Am I crazy? KCRW is the uh for me, and KPCC is the hmm. I made Uh, a choice. Oh, you did? That... Or do you not listen? Do, are we listening? See, this is how what is small K, what the is conversations the, what is the, what is the KPCC's uh, number? What is it? It's 89.3. 80, oh, 89. A number yeah. I had tattooed into my brain matter. <laughs> what? Don't you know that? No, I'm not. Do, 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 are, we, are we having that moment where we're just like conflicting NPR? This is so... <laughs> this is the white liberal bubble. We've hit the... the, 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 the we're pounding against. We've hit that limit of it. Because we've realized we listen to two different NPR stations. Oh my God. The knives Wait, are out. This is, this is where I... This is where a line I will not cross though. The line I will not cross is I was at a cafe yesterday getting a soy latte uh-huh. not an almond latte although i will do that on occasion sure it said they had macadamia nut milk oh my, everything can be milk oh yeah. my god i just i'm waiting for lint milk <laughs> <laughs> they've milked the belly button lint they've milked the fluff from your belly button uh, and turned it into lint it's it's a belly button fluff collected from um from all over it's got the essence of placenta south africa whatever and yeah, yeah and the, and half of the proceeds go to a good yeah you know, macadamia nut milk no not doing it. I say that, and that's all. That's all you're gonna have next. There are some places that only give you almonds now. I'm susceptible just, to all that stuff. You're you do that kind of thing willingly? Sure. I'm a, yeah, like a vegetarian. Like if someone tells me like, what was I was reading something about like, a, is it macadamia oil is what you're supposed to cook in because it yeah. has a a higher burning temperature where it starts to smoke and you know yeah, all the, that the, the smoke temperature. Yeah, yeah. and I'm like mm-hmm. you know I I'll get any of that off of the internet and it'll stick in my head. And then will you do it? Yes. Wow. I'm very, very susceptible uh-huh. to health See, trends. See, I'm negatively attuned because I'll be like, I have this problem. Like, sometimes I don't wash fruit. Not for my kid. I always washed fruit for my kid, but not because I feel like that just can't be true. <laughs> it's because I can't see it. That's like some kind of empirical knowledge. Yeah. Stupid. That's stupid. But like, but how, and I also just, like just rinsing an apple. How much is it? How right, much is it really it, happening? Isn't it in there already? Yes. If it was on the skin, isn't it? Absurd? I'm dead. If meat. I, <laughs> I dry clean clothes. Hasn't that been shown to the chemicals? I live two miles from a freeway. I'm on the freeway. I, I just sort of get this thing of, eh. Yeah. Which isn't right. Fatalism. It's it's not right. It's not right. I should be washing fruit at all times. <laughs> I, but I, you know, at least two hours I, a day. You know, they just did. A, they just show. They did a scientific study showing that the five second rule is not right. You know, the five second rule for your kids: if it falls on the floor less than five seconds, you can still eat it. No, apparently, one millisecond of exposure to bacteria is all it takes. Really? So there is no five second rule. I'll eat anything off the floor. I don't, right. Yeah. Well, you, you shouldn't. I mean, I have like <laughs> the 30, person. I have like the 30 year rule. <laughs> I mean, like whatever. Well, just, I mean, it depends what floor, if it's like at home and I think things are relatively clean, I'm not going to freak out if like a chip falls on the floor for two seconds. Like, yeah, 
well, you probably should. It's probably going to kill you. And I'm going to have to be at your funeral saying, I told him not to do that. But, uh, I, but I have this stupid thing that I, and, and, you know, but not for my kid. I wouldn't put my kid in that kind of danger. No, we but always wash fruit for the children. Always wash. Even if it's a fruitless person. I can't do that. Um, but me, eh, whatever. Well, uh, Annabelle, I'm so happy to have had the chance to meet you and to talk to you. Me too, because now I still don't know why I had your name in my email contact list, but I'm really glad. I, I'm really glad. I Everyone's got my email for some reason. Uh, but congratulations on the Thanks. new book. Congratulations on uh, the tour with Richard Dawkins. Thank you. And all that you have going. And mm -hmm. I will be eager to see... Uh, if things, I survive the if, tour, <laughs> I, it's not like 14 cities. I, I might not, I might not. It sounds it fun. Be, It'll be an adventure. Yeah. Oh, that's what I'm And by the way, for. he is a lightning rod. Are you going down into the deep South or anything with him? Uh, sadly, no, we're going to only liberal enclaves. Oh, so like, well, you know, yeah. you'll still have, I'm sure you'll have some people out there protesting, right? I actually read it again, not that I memorized it, but there was someone on Goodreads who said something about one of my books. They said, Annabelle Gurwitch wouldn't be so bitter. I don't think I'm bitter. I'm a little sarcastic, a little snarky. Uh, if she was a believer, actually, I'd be more bitter. If I believed there was a God doing, allowing all the shit to happen, I'd be really pissed like off. Like orchestrating all of this. Exactly. <laughs> so I, I take issue with that. Not that I memorized it or anything, but, uh, so yeah, I get, I get some of that because I've come out publicly as a non-believer. Hmm. Well, it's, uh, it's nice to talk with you. You too. I wish you luck. Thank you. Okay, folks, there you go. That is Annabelle Gerwich. Her book is called Wherever You Go, There They Are, available now from Blue Rider Press. You can find Annabelle online at AnnabelleGerwich.com. She's on Facebook. Her Twitter handle is at uh, Annabelle Gerwich. Wherever you go, there they are, available in bookstores, wherever books are sold online. Get your copy now. Thanks to Kill Rockstars, as always, for the music. Be sure to check out killrockstars.com. If, uh, if you enjoy this podcast, if you consume this content on a regular basis and you would like to support the show, you can do that over at patreon.com slash otherpplpod. Patreon.com slash otherpplpod. Throw a couple dollars in the hat. You can also support the show via PayPal. Uh, to do that, you just go to the uh, official website, otherppl.com. There's a link in the sidebar, a PayPal link. Total douche, where are you? Total douche. Raise your hand. And it's like very aspirational when you're in a spinning class. The teachers are always very high energy. It's like the job. So you're in there and they're shouting at you, trying to get you uh, hyped up, excited about life. Your goals, your dreams. <laughs> they say stuff like that. Your goals, your dreams. Come on, everybody. Your goals, your dreams. This is it. Your goals, your dreams, 
total douche? Total douche, where are you? Raise your hand. Total douche. And then it was like when I went up to her in the coffee shop to tell her that I knew how to spell douche. It was one of those things where like the first look on her face, like it was like a micro expression that flashed across her face, was fear. <laughs> then she smiled. It's like a mixture of fear and uh, excitement, perhaps, to be confronted with total douche in person. It's not uncommon from what I hear. Your goals, your dreams, your goals, your dreams, total douche.